All right. You can see that uh, we're talking about the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. We will do a little bit of reviewing, and then uh, we'll move on to some new material today. I'm going to reread the statement from our Constitution. I think that's a good starting point, so let me read that. This is Timberlake Baptist Church's position on the Holy Spirit. We believe that God exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person of the Godhead, being of the same substance, fully equal in perfection, attributes, and deity. Yet they are distinct from one another and unique as to the role and office. So, for a few weeks, three or four, whatever it takes us, we're going to be taking a look at the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned last week that there's a lot of confusion in different Christian circles about the Holy Spirit. And I mentioned just two of the extremes. There's many. But you have the Jehovah's Witnesses who, of course, deny that he is God. In fact, they go one step further. They deny that he is a person at all. At least they give credit that Jesus Christ lived a life and was a created being. But the Holy Spirit doesn't even get that benefit. He is referred to, rather, as the power or the force of God that's in action in the world, but not a person and certainly not deity. The other extreme would be the Pentecostal movement, and there they emphasize what's called the baptism of the Spirit, and they look at that as a second act of grace. You're saved, but then later you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And, of course, that group is interested in bringing back all the gifts, all the miracles that we saw in the New Testament age. And so there are your two extremes, from under-emphasizing him to over-emphasizing him. The most important thing to remember about the Holy Spirit is that it's all about Christ. It's not about him. Uh, turn with me again to John 16. This was the verse we started with last week. John 16 and verses 13 and 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. There's your catchphrase. He, the Spirit, will glorify me, the Son. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it, to you. And so this is what we need to emphasize and think about as we go through the series, and that is that the Spirit does not elevate himself, but elevates the Son. I read a number of quotes last week. I'll cut it down from three to just one, but I would like to repeat the one from Martin Lloyd-Jones regarding the Spirit's role. The Spirit does not glorify himself. He glorifies the Son. 
This is, to me, one of the most amazing and remarkable things about the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit seems to hide himself and to conceal himself. He's always, as it were, putting the focus on the Son. And that is why I believe, and I believe profoundly, that the best test of all as to whether we have received the Spirit is to ask ourselves, what do we think of and what do we know about the Son? Is the Son real to us? That is the work of the Spirit. He is glorified indirectly. He's always pointing us to the Son. And so you see how easily we go astray and become heretical if we concentrate overmuch and in an unscriptural manner upon the Spirit himself. Yes, we must realize that he dwells within us, but his work in dwelling within us is to glorify the Son and to bring to us that blessed knowledge of the Son and of his wondrous love to us. It is he who strengthens us with might in the inner man for the purpose that we might know this love, the love of Christ. One of the things I did not mention last week and I wanted to uh, touch on just before I go to the points on the outline is uh, the verse that's at the top of your outline. If you take a look at that, it's John fourteen sixteen. So you won't have to turn there. It's quoted for you there. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Some translations will have that as comforter, and that's fine. Uh, The Greek word can be translated helper or comforter. But interestingly, it can even be translated into more words than that. The same Greek word is used over in 1 John 2 when it talks about we have an advocate with the Father. Some translations there would put uh, intercessor. And so there's really no less than four words, and I think they're all great to use with the ministry of the Spirit. He is our helper. He is our comforter. He is our advocate. And he is our intercessor. Yes, Christ shares two of those roles as well, but the Spirit definitely is an intercessor. We read one of the verses last time uh, regarding how he takes our prayers and presents them to the Father. And so the Holy Spirit has all of these roles. Uh, The term literally means one called alongside to encourage. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is. He comes alongside. I know he dwells within us. But it's as if one coming alongside as if to encourage us. All right, let's take a look then at the outline. Uh, We'll be obviously much briefer than we were last week. But I do want to go back over the points again. First of all, we talked about the Holy Spirit being a person. He's not a thing. He's not a force. He's not a power. He's a person. And one of the reasons we believe that is because... Personal pronouns are always used with him. It's never it, it's he or him because he is a person. And last week we talked about the Greek, and I'm not going to go back and bore you with that, but it is an interesting point that uh, the uh, Greek translates the pronouns 
as masculine, never what we call neuter. So we see from that that he is a person. Uh, the verse, whoop, skipped a couple here. There we go. Uh, a verse that makes that very clear. Look at all the pronouns, all crammed into one verse. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So you can see the emphasis in scripture to make him a person. We also find in another regard why we know the Holy Spirit to be a person is because of the way Jesus uses the word another here. We also looked at the Greek with this, and we'll skip that. But the point is, there are two uh, different Greek terms for another. There's another of the same kind, and there's another of a different kind. This is the word for another of the same kind. In other words, the same substance. He is deity. He is a person, just like Jesus Christ is. And this is the one that the Father is going to send to replace the Son, who is soon to rejoin his Father. And so we find that the Holy Spirit is recognized as a person. We then saw in part B there of Rome numeral 1 that uh, the Holy Spirit has attributes of personality. And we'll just go through these quickly with just one verse each. You'll notice, first of all, that he has a mind. You can see here in Romans 8.27, And he who searches hearts, that is the Father, he knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, in a way that I don't understand, the Father can read the Spirit's thoughts. He knows his mind, and that is an evidence of intellect. We find next there that he knows and searches the things of God. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. It says here that he searches even the deep things of God. <coughs> then uh, C, he is able to teach men. Paul says we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The idea there is that Paul and the other apostles taught us through the actual word of God. They're the writers of scripture, but they were not taught by human wisdom, but they were taught obviously by the spirit, who is the true author of the word. And then D, he imparts wisdom and counsel. We see here in Isaiah the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, that is, the Son. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So even to the Son, God himself, the Spirit imparted wisdom and counsel while he was here on earth. We talked last week about the fact that 
Christ submitted to the will of the Father in all matters, and one of those was that he might be led by the Spirit while here on earth. And then thirdly, we see here that the Holy Spirit has a will. So all of these are attributes of personality, to have an intellect, to have emotions, and to have a will. You see here that first of all, and what in the world happened with my verses? Oh, I skipped, didn't I? You're going to sit there and just let me do that? All right, let's go back up. We're only on two. We didn't do emotions yet. Uh, One, he can be grieved. This is a familiar verse. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Only a person can display an emotion of grief. And we can grieve the Holy Spirit when we try to quench his work. He can be outraged. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? That passage goes on to say it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He can be outraged, furious at the trampling of the Son. He experiences joy. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then he loves. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And of course, what leads the list on the fruit of the Spirit? Love, okay? The one who has love and is love gives fruit to believers. And as you would expect, the very first one is indeed love. The Holy Spirit has emotions. Now we can go to will. He possesses the ability to determine or act decisively. He distributes spiritual gifts to believers. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit, For the common good. Every believer receives a gift from the Holy Spirit. A spiritual gift that they might use in the body. And then also he directs the activities of God's servants. It's his will that move men to do things for God. Early in the book of Acts. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting up in the church at Antioch. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I mentioned last week, the church didn't just decide on their own to send them. Paul and Barnabas did not volunteer. They were chosen and directed by the Holy Spirit. Then another example, uh, a little bit later on the second uh, trip, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. His will this time was a negative one. 
you'll not go into Asia, but rather you're going to turn in another direction. And we talked last week how that opened the door to the entire European uh, second and third mission trips. So the Holy Spirit directing the lives of these men. Then we find uh, in uh, letter C that he has the actions of personality. Boy, am I skipping around again? I'm sorry. I'm... Oh, I bet those are verses I just was going to have us look up. Give me just a moment to catch up here. Yeah, that was the problem. Okay, uh, he teaches and he guides. Uh, I'm not going to read those today, but uh, the Romans 8.14 one there about guiding, it simply says that all true believers are led by the Spirit. So he is their guide. Let's drop down to three there, where I do now pick up with the verses again. He commands and directs. Uh, You remember the story. I don't have time to go back over all of it, but uh, this is the uh, climax of the Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch encounter. The spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And so he commanded Philip. Remember, he took Philip from Samaria, miraculously transported him to the desert, met the eunuch, was able to witness to the eunuch, was able to see that man saved and baptized, all because the Holy Spirit directed Philip to do so. And then we also find that he intercedes for believers. And this is where we ended up last week then. We find here in Romans 8.26, Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so we find that he has an intercessory ministry uh, with believers. It's interesting to see that um, the Holy Spirit directed him out away from everybody and, and went down where that eunuch was uh, in a chariot. Uh, and that was the beginning, I believe, of missions to Africa. No, well, yeah. Because that's what he was headed back to to Africa. Right. And uh, that, that encourages me because I, I was at Burundi uh, several times. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, you have a heart for that. That's Yeah, I don't know that I'd thought of it in, in quite that way. That's right. He was going back, whatever Ethiopia was in those days, it probably wasn't exactly the modern country, but it was definitely Africa. And he was returning there from uh, a trip to uh, Jerusalem. Evidently, he was some kind of maybe a a Jewish proselyte, or he wouldn't have been going up to Jerusalem, but wasn't saved until Philip shared the word with him. Yeah, the first uh, mission, mission recipient of the word of God. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, not only is the Holy Spirit a person, he, of course, is God. And so you can see here on your next page with Roman numeral two, 
that the reason we believe at Timberlake that the Holy Spirit is part of the triune God is that he has the attributes of deity. And so you can read along here with me as we take a look at some of these. First of all, he's omnipresent. That means he is everywhere. Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So whether on earth, in heaven, or in hell, Sheol, Hades, whatever, the Holy Spirit is there. And David knew that he was not going to escape from his presence. He is everywhere. In other words, he's not bound by the laws of nature. He is a spirit, and as such, has the freedom to be everywhere. He's eternal, just like the Father and Son. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The writer of Hebrews takes the time to not just say, through the Spirit, through the eternal Spirit, the one who always has been and always will be. The Holy Spirit is truth itself. John 5, verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. It's not just that the Spirit has truth to share. He is the very definition of what is truth. That is an attribute of deity. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, even to the point of giving life. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The Holy Spirit is able to impart life. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Who has measured, or better word there probably is directed, who's directed the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Those are all rhetorical questions to make it clear that the answer is always no one. No one has directed the spirit of the Lord. No one shows him counsel. He didn't consult with anyone else. No one makes him understand. He is God. He understands all. And then he has the attribute of holiness being set apart from creation. Let's go down to B there. Some statements of deity. We're going to turn to a few of these now. Uh, 2 Corinthians, if you would. Statements of deity, these are all going to be verses that throw all three members of the Trinity together in single statements, making it clear that they belong together as a unit. 2 Corinthians 3.17 It says there, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
Now we have to ask a question. Who is this Lord? It says that the Lord is the Spirit. Well, to get that, we need to go back up to verse 14. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. So Christ is the subject of 14. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, still speaking from verse 14 of Christ, then the veil is removed. And now 17 comes along and says, Now the Lord, this Christ we've been speaking of, is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In other words, they are one. And that reminds us of a passage in John when the Father and Son are related that way. I and the Father are one. And here it's the Son and the Spirit. Now this Lord, this one spoken of earlier in the chapter, is the Spirit. There is a unity there among uh, the Trinity. This is a real good one, showing that the Holy Spirit is indeed deity. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And I have that colored for a reason, you'll see. All right, so Peter says, Ananias, you've lied to the Spirit. To keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so you can see in the start of the verse, Peter says the lie was to the Spirit. He ends the passage by saying the lie was to God. And so we find that uh, the Holy Spirit is called deity. Uh, Go with me to uh, Matthew uh, chapter 20. I'm going to skip the 3, 16, and 17 one. That's the baptismal scene. And so all three are present there, right? The Father speaks, the Son is baptized, and the Spirit descends as a dove. Uh, Go with me over to the Matthew 28. And, of course, one of the nice things with an outline, if I do end up skipping a verse or two, and I'm not going to skip many, you've got the outline that you can go back and look at. 28.19. Obviously, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So they are to make disciples. And they're to make them of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. And then one other in this connection. I think that'll be enough to make our point. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. All three are wrapped up in this uh, ending uh, greeting that Paul has for the church at Corinth. Benediction would be a better word. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. As if to indicate that there are three members of the Trinity. And so we feel that the Holy Spirit is not just a person, but he is also God. And I I mentioned when I started this series, I I know I'm preaching to the choir, okay? I don't think any of you are stumbling over the idea of the Holy Spirit being a person or being God. But it's good just to reflect on it and uh, perhaps have a verse or two in your head if you ever face anyone challenging that, uh, which you would if you ever wanted to converse with a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, They certainly would deny everything that we've said so far. All right, let's move on then to the work of the Holy Spirit. Roman numeral three here for you. And first of all, we're going to take a look at his first work, and that is uh, his role in the act of creation. In Psalm 104, earlier in the chapter, uh, the psalmist has talked about uh, cattle, fish, even plants, men, in other words, anything alive. That's what he's been talking about in that chapter. And then when we get down to verse 30, we see who's responsible for life. When you send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. All things that are created, the spirit plays a role in. And we're going to see that uh, with a number of verses as uh, we go through this. So the breath or the spirit of every living thing depends on God's spirit. Genesis 1-2, we'll get something a little bit more familiar now, says the earth was without form and void. It wasn't finished. It was incomplete at this time. It had been created, but it wasn't completed. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This hovering, I think, is an interesting thing. I want to show you uh, a passage that gives you an idea of what this hovering might indicate. Go back to uh, Deuteronomy. It has nothing to do with creation and nothing to do with the Spirit, per se. But it's the hovering that I want to take a look at. 32.11 Now, I'm reading from the ESV, and it does not use the word hover, but it's the same Hebrew. Deuteronomy 32.11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young. There's that idea of hovering. It flutters over its young. What's another translation have there for flutter? Everyone has flutter? Okay. Oh, you do have hover. Okay. I was. I thought that might be the case with the... Is that the King James? New King James? New King James, okay, the word hover. And I like that. I like that even better. Uh, but the eagle is hovering over its young. What does that indicate? Uh, an interest, a protection. And just like an eagle doing that for its young, that's what this verse says the Spirit was doing over creation at this time. The Spirit was hovering, protecting watching, participating in the creative activity. So we might say God the Father planned creation. 
The Son effected it. Remember in Colossians, for by him were all things created. But then the Spirit is actually the one bringing creation to completion, according to this verse here. Even to the point of the Spirit participating with man, his creation. Because notice, God said, let us. We sometimes use that verse to talk about uh, a text for the Trinity. And indeed, that's the case. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so the Spirit participated in creation. That was his first work. You can see there in B then, he also participates or participated in inspiration. Here's one of the two favorite key verses to talk about the inspiration of the scriptures. Peter says, knowing this first of all, and that doesn't mean knowing this first in order, but knowing this first in importance, knowing this first of all, No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And of course the depths of that we can't really dig into. How did the Spirit use men guarding them so that every word was exactly the word God wanted it to be, and yet allowing them to have personality and express things differently. John does not express things the way that a Luke would or a Mark, but it's the Spirit. Somehow the Spirit is taking these men and giving them divine truth. Uh, There's a reference. Go over to Acts 27. Acts 27. This is another example of a verse that's not talking about our topic, but it's talking about this word carried along. Men were carried along by the Spirit. Acts 27 and verse 15. This is Paul's trip to Rome and the shipwreck that's going to follow briefly after this. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. That's the same Greek as carried along in this verse in Peter. So you can almost imagine that, that the spirit, and this is kind of interesting because we'll talk about this in a week or two, the spirit is often discussed as being a wind And you can almost see the illustration coming through here. The ship was carried along by the wind. The men of Scripture were carried along by the Spirit. They were driven by Him. They were not robots. As I said, I I can't get into the depths of that. I don't understand it. But not being robotic, they were led by the Spirit to pen the words of Scripture. Uh, Take a look at this verse with me. This is interesting. This is Jesus speaking. And he says in Mark, David himself 
in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so David, speaking in the Holy Spirit, what does he say? And it's not even so much what he says here, I want to emphasize, but it's the fact that Scripture. David, in the Holy Spirit, said, Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus himself said that Scripture is given by the Holy Spirit. Yes, David authored it humanly. But Jesus makes it clear that it's the Spirit who is directing David to write the 110th Psalm and every other Psalm that he wrote. So we find that the Holy Spirit is involved in inspiration. Thirdly, we see here uh, the act of begetting Christ. This is another mystery. I cannot address this except to read Scripture and stay within its bounds. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Somehow, a supernatural creative act occurred beyond any human comprehension. The Spirit was going to generate life within her womb. Her child would not only be her physical son, but would also be the Son of God. He would be man and he would be deity. It's the Spirit whose work produced the seed in Mary. Fourthly, the act of convicting unbelievers of sin. This is a real power-packed short verse. And when he comes, and that is the Spirit, that's what Jesus has been talking about in John 14 through 16. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. These are all going to be acts or works of the Holy Spirit in which he's going to convict unbelievers. So, the first one there. He convicts them of their sin. That means he's going to expose them to the reality of their condition before God. Then he's going to confront them with the truth of God's holy standard and Christ's perfect righteousness. And then thirdly, he's going to convict them about the consequences of divine judgment and show that they're just and necessary. This warning of unbelievers about future judgment, that's one of the real gracious gifts of the Spirit. He's alerting them to the awful truth that awaits them if they do not repent. Then we see there as a fifth point, the Holy Spirit is involved in regeneration. We find here in uh, John 3, 6 and 7, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And that can also be translated born from above. It's the same Greek phrase, born again, born uh, above. But the idea of being born again indicates something new. And that's what regeneration is. Generation is a birth. 
regeneration would be the new birth. It's the spirit who's involved in the new birth. It's a transformation that takes a man from an unsaved state to a saved state. <clears throat> what does Paul say over in 2 Corinthians 5.17? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature or new creation. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit is responsible for regeneration. Go uh, with me over to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. Peter expresses the same thought in slightly different language. 1 Peter 1 3. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be, there it is, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He does not talk about the spirit here, but he talks about the phrase that is of interest to us. Just like John said that it was the spirit that causes the new birth, Peter says that indeed you've received a new birth because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And then finally, the act of bestowing spiritual gifts. Turn uh, to uh, 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. All these... Speaking of spiritual gifts here, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Greek word for spiritual gift is related to the word for grace. So a spiritual gift is actually an act of grace from God. A spiritual gift is defined as a God-given ability for service. The distribution of gifts is under the sovereign direction of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so we see that he is responsible for bestowing spiritual gifts. Uh, we'll talk about uh, some specifics of spiritual gifts a little bit later in the series. But he is the one who grants these. He grants them as he wills. And of course he gives them for service. All right, well, probably should wrap up, but let's just quickly just get ourselves prepared for next week because this very uh, first one coming up here is one that we do need to make sure we're clear on. This is the one where uh, the Pentecostal uh, folks would split paths with us, okay? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but we believe that it occurs at conversion, not as a second grace later on in the believer's life. And so uh, I would encourage you to uh, take a look at uh, uh, the one verse that's uh, quoted there. But I'll have a lot to say about that next week. One of the things I'll do, remember I brought this up last week and I didn't want to go back and do that again today. We talked about the fact uh, 
that there are passages in Acts that would be a little confusing until you really study them closely. For instance, the one we discussed was the notion of uh, the Samaritans receiving Christ. It says that they believed Philip's preaching and they came to true faith in Christ and they were baptized, but they did not receive the Holy Spirit. That came after Peter and John were sent to Samaria from Jerusalem. And when they got there, then the people received the Holy Spirit. Well, boy, that sounds all the world like a second act of grace. So we'll have to take a look at that and uh, a couple of others in Acts where that took place as well, where it was not simultaneous. But then I'll end that by giving you just a good practical reminder anytime you're in the book of Acts. And I'll spill the beans, but we're going to really talk about it next week. The book of Acts is not prescriptive. In other words, it is not written to tell us what we need to be doing today. It's a narrative. It's simply relating what took place in those days. And we're going to see that there's a big difference between telling us what we should be doing and what happened under special conditions. Obviously, Acts has an awful lot of special conditions. You've got speaking in tongues all over the place in the book of Acts. And you've got miraculous healings. And so uh, an explanation is needed, and uh, we'll go over that. I said next week. That, of course, isn't true. Next week is Truth and Light Conference. And so we do not meet for Sunday school. So two weeks. Uh, I hope that you will be here next Sunday, and even Friday night and Saturday, if you can make it. It's a three-day conference, uh, and uh, boy, the, the Spirit of God was really leading in this. You know what the topic is this year? Coping with grief. How appropriate to Timberlake Baptist Church, huh? How many funerals have we walked through in the last month, month and a half. And so, uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's providence at work. Holy Spirit directing Mark Hager and Pastor Farrell, whoever's involved with the counseling part, to have this as a topic. All right, let's uh, pray then. Father, thank you for another week to share your word. And I thank you that your word is very clear about the role of the Spirit. We thank you for him. We know that he lives within us. He indwells us, and we'll talk about that next week. And we thank you for that gift. We thank you that he is a helper, a comforter, an advocate, an intercessor for the believer. And I thank you that we can walk on firm ground as we trust Scripture and we see it unfold, showing us his personhood, his deity, his work, and as we go on and talk about other topics, uh, we thank you. Thank you for this group of believers, for the fellowship that we have in here. We pray that you would raise up those that couldn't make it today and that they could join us next time uh, we meet together. We thank you for this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.